Hi there. Welcome to season one of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services and to see all the places this podcast can be found, go to BertScholl.com. B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Sharon Nelson. Sharon is a teacher, an instructional technology specialist, a plant-based food enthusiast, the wife of a very supportive husband, and a mother of three amazing kids. Sharon has been cancer-free for six years. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bert. Thanks for having me on this wonderful podcast. It's appreciated. You're so welcome. Why don't you begin by telling everyone what you were diagnosed with and how old you were? Okay. So at age of 45, and I'm now 52, I was diagnosed at first with colon cancer, stage one, but that changed rapidly as the diagnosis progressed into a stage 3C rectal cancer diagnosis. And when you say it progressed... Was it not diagnosed accurately the first time or did it quickly develop? Uh, Correct. Unfortunately, much to our great surprise, I was diagnosed in December of 2012 on New Year's Eve, actually. And they told me at the time it would be, yeah, it would be a quick turnaround in six weeks. I could get right back to work and they would just have to get out this little tumor that was in my colon and I'd be all set. All right. That was not the case. And then... How did they discover that was not the case? Uh, Great question. I went into surgery only 10 days after the diagnosis. And because I was new to cancer and had anyone in my whole family, no relationships with any person with cancer previously that I talked to on a regular basis, I did not realize the power of a second opinion. So we went Mm -hmm. forward immediately with surgery thinking, get that disease out of me. And so in 10 days, the local surgeon went forward with surgery. It was a general surgeon and the job was to get the cancer out. And so I had a lower anterior resection. And in that surgery, my abdomen surgery, they apparently saw this tumor was far lower and much larger. It ended up being a four centimeter tumor instead of a much smaller tumor. And it was Uh eight centimeters lower than what they originally said. Okay, so they found it was larger and lower in the colon. And is that when they discovered that it was not a stage one? Yes, it actually was right at the sigmoid colon break. So right where it curves. And what happened, I believe, is that the original diagnosis was a little bit vague and without enough diagnostic imagery and enough expertise. What happened is they thought it was in the colon, but after looking at it, they reassessed during surgery on the spot and saw that it was actually much, much lower and it was in a higher rectum area. And at that point, they did not close the surgery. They made the decision to take the tumor out and clear the area. And at that time, they also took a whole bunch of lymph nodes and out of the 30 nodes they took, I think 15. So I had what's called local regional spread. 15 of 30 nodes. Hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is a general surgeon went into a cancer surgery and found themselves with more than they had anticipated. When I I had a general surgeon do my surgery, and the general surgeon was the first person I was referred to once I was diagnosed. And one of the first things he did is he gave me, I believe it was an ultrasound, 
you put this long steel rod up my behind, which was kind of Ugh. a little difficult to Nasty. stomach. Yeah, and by doing the ultrasound, he was able to find the stage. They can't tell, you know, if it's stage three in that regard or beyond, but he could certainly tell that it was stage two. Right. So at that time, did you also have the CT and any x-ray or any kinds of other diagnostics? The only thing they gave me was one CT, and it was told later to me that they felt that it looked fuzzy. Hmm. With me, the ultrasound did not show that there was any growth into the lymph nodes. And so when the surgery happened, my doc took the lymph nodes out as well, you know, and then did the pathology, and there was nothing in them. Wow. So you had a stage four diagnostic though, right? And I was diagnosed three. The first time I was diagnosed, it was stage two T4, which meant that the cancer cells were like just about kissing the lymph nodes. They were real close. Okay. So mine was three C and I can't remember what C meant, but basically they said I had millimeters before it broke through the outside layer of the rectal tissue. Okay. Yeah. My second diagnosis was a stage four when it metastasized to the liver. Now I understand because stage four, of course, is metastasized past a local spread. Yeah. Hence the description. Thank you. And that was when we met, when I was going through the stage four at that time. Yeah. Can we talk about that for a minute? You can ask me as many questions as you want. This is a conversation. I so enjoyed meeting you. And I think part of it was I, one time we were out on the beach. Is that where we originally met? I can't. Yes. There was discussion of you. And then I saw you and I think I may have been with my family. I don't know, whatever it was, it was so inspirational to see you loaded up with devices. You you showed (laughs) me your belly. You said, I've got this and I've got this thing, this implant thing, and I've got this liver thing. And so at that point, I had had no surgeries that I remember other than just the cancer coming out. I had not had my port surgery that I, well, I had my port, but I hadn't had much going on yet. So it was super inspirational for me to hear you as a rectal cancer patient discuss how well you were doing and what an outstanding, energetic, interesting person you could be and out in nature and all the things I felt at the time that I was giving up because of cancer, you were able to bring back to me. And I appreciate that forever. That's an awesome thing. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, there were times that I was able to go out and when I could, I did, you know, like there were times when the chemo, after my chemo treatments, I didn't go anywhere, but then yeah. there would be the days that followed in between that I could go and get fresh air and spend time at the lake at Taganic Park. If those are listening, Taganic spot. State Park. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, beautiful location. Yeah. And one of the things that's hard is that when you've just had surgery, you do have to stay home for some of it. Like my lower anterior cut, um, it, they actually cut a second line directly above my C-section cut where I had my, my children. And I was told later that they never should have ran another line. So that was pretty difficult to hear after not really understanding that. And then the second thing is when I finally got my second diagnosis because I thought that I had to get a diagnosis for the treatment, Mm. not the diagnosis on the whole idea of cancer, you see. So then I went to Roswell Park in Buffalo in February after the January surgery. Mm -hmm. So now February 5th, I go to Roswell and I have this amazing experience. But when I walk in, the doctor fought with me. And I said, what are you saying? He said, you do not have colon cancer. And that was the first time I had an aha moment that something was wrong. He said, you have rectal cancer. It was so intense. 
And what was he upset about? What was he distinguishing? Well, without knocking the local folks, because they did everything they could to understand it, I think I really needed an expert opinion from someone that did a lot more colorectal surgery. Because I think what in, a, in diagnostic work for colorectal, rectal cancer specifically. So what he, he was saying at the time, and the nurse in the room said too, is that it appears that they're telling you you have colon cancer, but truly that's not what we're telling you. You need to move forward. And at that point, they said they agreed with the doctor. One of my doctors was a new radio-oncologist in our facility there. And they agreed with him that it was a stage three rectal cancer and that we should move forward with the rectal cancer therapies, not the colon cancer therapies. They're very different. And did you know that when you started that they treat colon cancer very different than, they call it colorectal, but but they're very different. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So colon cancer, they told me that if you have colon cancer, your colon is kind of moving quite a bit. And because of the movement of the colon and the way that it is in your body, they are not able to do direct radiation treatments to the colon. So people with colon cancer cannot receive radiation treatments. They receive the chemotherapy, right? Okay. Well, when I found out I had rectal cancer, all of a sudden what I was expecting and I had read about was I would receive chemotherapy. But all of a sudden the words radiation started becoming more important than any part of the colon cancer thing. And they said, it's going to be a five-week radiation regime and you'll have what's called chemo radiation. It's a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. So I kind of wanted to know a little bit about your idea with that. Like when you were first diagnosed, it was stage 2T something. And at that time, was that radiation for you or was that chemo? How did it work for you? It was rectal cancer, stage 2, T4 rectal cancer. Mm -hmm. And I was prescribed five and a half weeks of chemotherapy around the clock and radiation five days a week. It was always, I always found it odd that they would give you weekends off. I'm like, aren't we trying to kill cancer here? That's what I thought. (laughs) We're trying to kill cancer here, (laughs) right? That's what I thought. I felt the same way. Very strange. Surreal. Yeah. And did you get the PET scan? My PET scan, I'm trying to recall. I have had PET scans for sure. Yeah, I've had them for definitely. In our facility, do you realize it's a 18-wheeler truck that pulls in? Well, I actually had my surgery and treatments at Guthrie and Sayre, Pennsylvania. Okay. So you didn't have the same thing. They don't own the uh, PET scan device there either. They also have a truck come in. So how weird, right? So the truck pulls in and I don't realize it's a truck yet. And they want to do this full system PET scan, which is like nuclear energy to write find spots of cancer and they, they light up beautifully. That's when they thought I had gone stage four. What had happened is they hmm. found a couple of spots and they had to check them. And I was on my way to get some biopsies. I can't remember the order of operations, but I had to go into this big, long hallway and then a second long skinny hallway. And as I continued, and you have to go alone, right? Remember this? You get all the way down the chute and then this cargo bay door opens up and it's snowing. <laughs> and what it was so surreal because the one thing I most remember is as the snow is coming down outside, it's falling between the cracks of the metal cargo bay door and the open door. It almost felt like I was going into like Narnia. 
Yeah, yeah. And so what I did is I kind of just tunneled it. I went into my fiction head. And as a teacher, I just decided, okay, pull everything you can. Who are we meeting in Narnia, you know? And off I went. And when you walk in, the first thing they do is they put you in that funky room, you know? Mm -hmm. And they give you they give you that glucose talk about you can't think about anything. We don't We're gonna inject yeah. this radioactive <laughs> Yeah, radioactive material into you, and you have to be completely still. And if you can't tell from my voice, I move all the time, and mm. I am not a still person. So you have to be completely still. You can't look around. We're going to pull this shower curtain across, and that lady that's over there looking half dead, I just want you to ignore her because she's fine. And so then they're going to say, next, we're going to inject you with this giant needle, and we're going to make sure that we shut this door that has a huge radioactive sign on it. And and now you can't think. I was so amazed with how bizarre it all felt. So I was like watching from outside as well as thinking about all the scary things inside. It was great. Yeah, weird. yeah. It's such mm -hmm. a wild experience, and it's just I, I have the you know image in my mind of you walking into the snow. You're like, what? I'm going out into the snow. Yes. I thought I was getting a PET scan. And I felt like um, Neo in in the Matrix, where mm -hmm. he either has to take the red pill or the the blue pill, and whether I'm going to see it for real or not. It was almost like the white coated people inside were trying to fool me into believing it was easier than it was. <laughs> and I get in there, and like they look beautiful, two two young folks and two ladies, and their hair was nice, and they're in these gorgeous coats. And I asked one of them, I said, "How often do you do this?" She goes, "Oh, I just work uh, weekdays. I don't see my family much because I'm on the road." And I got thinking, I said, on the road, she said, yeah, this is a portable unit. And it wasn't until that very moment that I realized I was in an 18-wheeler truck. And one of the most hysterical stories is that's all I did in my past years of work. I was a transportation coordinator. So one of my jobs was to calculate the volume of the computer cables that our company from, from Cable Express were shipping out. And I had to coordinate the size, the dimensions, and all that, and the weight. So here I am in my head right now, re ready for my PET scan. And I'm beginning to calculate like my dimensions, thinking, how much space does this all take up? <laughs> Duh! Where do we go when we have situations like this, right? Anyway, it all yeah. it was very humorous. Did you have something like that? Like a very humorous many moments? Well, I mean, there were so many. Yeah, but when you talk about the PET scan, I just want to let people who are listening know that the PET scan is a machine that picks up on radioactive sugar, which is injected into your body. And it takes a while for the radioactive sugar to find cancer. Cancer likes sugar, so it grabs onto it when it moves by it through the blood. And in order to not have any sugar showing up in areas where there isn't cancer, they don't want you to move. They don't want you to listen to music. They don't want you to watch anything. They don't want you to read. They want you to be in stillness and in relative darkness. Because your brain, right? Yeah. Yeah, they don't want your brain to pull up the glucose. So they're yeah. trying to get the cancer to take care of the glucose, right? Yeah, there are already parts <sighs> of the body that are going to grab onto it regardless. And so they're trying to reduce any, uh, uh, you know, any unnecessary imagery. And so, yeah, you spend about 45 minutes and they have you walk in the other room and do the scan. Right there's a bit of humor that you can employ when you're dealing with situations that are this rough. And for me, it's always kind of like this outside looking in and how, how must this look? And so I asked the young lady uh, because I was worried for her uh, fertility that she was doing this job, right? I said, how do you protect yourself and your future babies if you want them? 
And she said, that's a great question. Number one, we always get outside the field. We close you in this facility. There's radioactive signs and we make sure that we're distancing. And second, we wear the appropriate attire to not get those, um, whatever it is they get, you know, the problems that come from that. And then she said, and we rotate shifts. I thought that was interesting. And she said she was from Connecticut. So she works in the hospital. And then once in a while, she works in this portable Mm. thing. So they took turns and got less um, exposure that way. Gotcha. Do you remember the needle is also in a lead container? Yes. And remember how it looked like a bread box? Did you have one in a, mine opened up in this. I just don't remember. Look at that. It was 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 encased in a. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Lead filled box. Oh, it was crazy. And mine opened up. There was a glass or sort of see-through transparent opening. So I could see the needle in the case. And as they opened it, I thought, this is the bread of life. Look at what I'm getting. (laughs) And then I remember they give you a business card when you drive home. Because if you get pulled over and a police officer can detect radiation, you have to tell them that you received a uh, PET scan and that you're not carrying, you know, radioactive... uh, Yes. I don't know, weapons Do you remember having to, ways? They said I couldn't go to the bathroom until I urgently had to go. And at that point, I got released a little early and they sent me down a different hallway to a private restroom and said, do not speak to anyone. Do not interfere with anyone else's stuff and use the restroom, wash your hands, come back. And at this point, we are going to tell you, we don't want you holding your babies for 24 hours. We do not want you holding animals. Remember, I couldn't hold my own children until I had gone through this certain number of hours. So there's a terrifying component to it. But at the same time, it's so important that they follow these strict guidelines so that we're healthy, right? Yes. Yeah. Do not hold your baby. Because you have a son. And there was when something you, about okay. using, yeah, there was something about using yeah. the baby. Yeah, there was something about using the bathroom at home to like make sure you flush. flush. Like if you're a family who conserves water with toilets, you know, make sure you flush because you don't, because your urine is radioactive. Yeah, it was quite a trip. Yes. And I felt like in Monsters Inc., you know, when they come down in their hazmat suits and everything, <laughs> I mean, that's another jump into the future. But later we could talk about uh, the chemo kit that everyone receives when they get chemo. Um, you know, it's, it felt a lot like that, but you have a, you have a son and do you have just one kid? I have a stepson who's now 22. He was nine at the time. And my my little guy is 13 and he was, you know, he was five months old when I was diagnosed. Oh, my heart goes out to Bert because I have such vivid memories of my four-year-olds. I have twin four-year-olds at the time they were four, and then I have an, a nine-year-old boy. So the girls, the girls had no idea of what was going on. And talking to children about cancer is absolutely probably the most challenging thing I think that we had to deal with in the early days. Mm. You know, they have the experience. Oh, they were so he was so little. Well, the nine-year-old, I told him what was going on, and. You know, I spoke to his, you know, his mom and I decided we would tell him the truth. And if, if who Us too. and if who we are being, you know, who we're being is going to communicate more to him than anything. You know what I mean by that? Like we, we weren't being afraid. We weren't being scared. We were just being honest and gentle. Yep. And so we told him I had cancer. And, you know, do you know what that is? And he said, yes, you know, because he knows that his grandmother died of cancer. And... He asked if I'm going to die. I said, well, I'm not going to die. I said, it's possible. Yeah. And, and I feel really healthy. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to remove the cancer and I'm going to be okay. 
And he said, okay. That's amazing because my nine-year-old had similar response. I don't know if it's the age they're at because I taught fourth grade so many years. I know that they're very on the cusp of knowing about the greater world developmentally, but they're still very self-focused. So in some ways, I almost felt thankful that my kids were sort of lower in age. I had a healthy distraction. Mm. I also had less of their understanding of what was going on. So although I personally and my husband, we were really suffering there was so much going on in our house that had nothing to do with the cancer that I was just kind of running two totally separate tracks of momhood, no cancer awareness. And then here I am not even allowed to experience grief or suffering because I really, really needed to focus on being a mom and a wife, you know? You know, you're making a great point. There are or may I say, I found it valuable to distinguish where expressions of grief and upset were appropriate and where they were not. Now, some people, you know, you may be listening to this thinking, appropriate expressions of grief, like I have cancer, I might die, what are you talking about? So the way I saw it was, you know, I'm not going to express a great deal of emotional upset around the children whenever possible. The doctor said, you know, asked my wife to take on the finances and not and have me avoid that stress. And we, she and I were also both clear, my wife and I are both clear that, you know, she would need to vent about the frustrations of having a spouse with cancer. And we were both clear that, you know, I was not the person to do that with, you know, to have yeah. someone else and be like, I hate this right now. And he's driving me crazy with everything that he needs because that's real. Yes, it is. And I wish my husband had taken just a little more time to explore (laughs) getting, he was a charming, wonderful, supportive person, but I knew he was hurting so much. He needed that support, but he is so much not that guy um, that it went internal. And so he was very matter of fact with me. Um, I didn't get a lot of that. He's not a gusher anyway, but I needed just a touch more of that, you know, grabbing on at first. And then I realized that's way out of character for him. So then I was like almost in peace knowing, oh, he's just being my guy, you know, and I love him for it. So after 20, 24 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. Like my wife, I'm no longer married to her now, but at the time, you know, my wife, (laughs) well, I'll tell you what, we are split up and it was really difficult. And now we have forgiven one another and apologized and we're still apart but we're friends and we love one another and we have a joy we have a joyful relationship with each other we're both really clear that we weren't a match and we're both really clear we did a terrible job of breaking apart (laughs) Uh, my parents are divorced i've never met anyone that does a good job with that but thank you for explaining it you can be good amiable now yeah oh yeah we're friends now But it wasn't because of cancer. I mean, like, here's the other thing. How many relationships do peel apart because of that ideal expression of support or not support? Like I had siblings and family members saying, you know, why isn't your husband doing this? Why is he going to his, you know, other activities? Why isn't he home with you 24-7? I said, you don't understand. It's not like that. He has to gain strength. If he can't do his stuff, He's not going to be able to care for me. And there's a certain allowance as a cancer patient that we have to give everybody else. At the same time, we're trying to say, oh, woe is me. I need the support, right? Right. It's tough. Self-care for caretakers is so important. Huge. 
because there are times that they are not going to be able to provide themselves self-care. So when they can, it's really important. And as far as, you know, um, what I was saying about um, my former wife, she was a fantastic support. And there was this one thing that I really wished she would do when I would find myself crying and with her, you know, she would sit with me and wouldn't cry. And I noticed like, I really want her to cry with me. And I let her know Mm -hmm. that. And my memory, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, she just kind of looked at me and it just wasn't coming up for her. Is she someone who cries? Yes. But you know, you know, the complexities of the human mind, why is it that she didn't cry with me? I don't know. But as wonderful as she was and as fantastic and supportive spouse as she was, you know, no person is perfect. And, uh, I think the more people strive for perfection, you know, the more you can drive yourself into greater difficulties. And so when you ask, you know, did, did we split up because of the cancer? I don't feel like anything is not a part of how our life is today. Do you know what I mean? So right. I will yes, tell I you that know. cancer, you know, really puts a microscope on a relationship. I was so thankful that I had 20 years in already. And kid, <laughs> I cannot tell you. I think that cancer is one of the scariest things for mm. uh, significant others to even hear because you suddenly flash on fear of death is instant. You're so sure you're going to lose something, Mm -hmm. but also suffering, just long-term grieving of what would be coming. I had a friend that just lost her significant, and what she said as soon as her lover was diagnosed, there goes everything. I heard her say that to me, Mm. and that was after, there goes everything. There goes my life plan. There goes our life plan. She has cancer. I'm never going to get my my life back. Yeah. Pretty tough. It's tough and it's valid mm-hmm. you know it's it's it suggests that that person had a lot of preconceived ideas of what cancer was right you know it sounds and maybe like, wrong and that may be wrong and yeah for me what shifted is i was first i was in a space of like oh my goodness i'm going to die and yep trying to hang on to any thought in the first month of diagnosis felt impossible. It was like a tornado spinning in my brain. Every time you had a thought, you know, it would be pulled away from the mind and replaced with another constantly. It was quite chaotic. And when I finally realized, okay, I might die from this. And it wasn't like I came to this, you know, through a certain type of thinking. It just, just arose within me. I was like, oh my goodness, I might die from this. And there's nothing I can do about that. And that, liberated me because it had me realize I'm trying to grab control of something I have no control over. I felt like I was in a maze and I had to pick the right direction. And then I realized I'm in a labyrinth and there's only one direction to go and you can't know what's the right answer. That's a big piece of it. Yep. And letting go of the wish to have the right answer. What's the right treatment? What should I do? You know, what if I do the wrong one? I have options. Someone just tell me what to do. And at one point it just struck me. You're not going to know. You're going to go the way you go. You're going to live or you're going to die. And in that moment I got like, well, I might die. Then I'm just, I am going to live and be the fullest expression of me that I can possibly be. And what arose out of that you know, I, in retrospect, I can see that when my wife and I got married, 
when I joined the family, even before I got married, I started tamping out my self-expression, uh, my spiritual side. I just kind of buried it. I stopped being me. And people say, what do you mean? You added your band and you played music? I'm like, yeah, but there was a part of myself that I ignored and buried and pushed away because I felt it was my job to be a spouse and a step-parent and eventually a parent. And when Daniela and I finally split up, after a lot of the grief and suffering, what eventually arose was this part of me that I had pushed down and ignored that was so precious to myself finally started mm -hmm. having expression. And so did the cancer cause us to split up? Maybe what the cancer did is provided us some awareness about maybe we weren't such a good match as we thought we were. It sure is a microscope, isn't it? I yeah. can remember having... <laughs> I can remember having so many conversations about what a caregiver's responsibility should be. Some of my friends would say, well, why isn't he at every appointment with you? And I said, because I don't need him to be at every appointment. And they said, I think he should just do it. <laughs> and I said, no, no. I was like, you don't understand. Cancer starts fast, like you, you get diagnosed. But everything after that feels like you're in this sort of never-ending floating void that's full of decisions everywhere, but yet mm. time almost seems to put you in this weird, static, I don't, I can't explain time with cancer. It was so funky and it doesn't, decisions aren't made overnight and there's a tremendous patience that has to go with a diagnosis of cancer on everyone's parts. And my husband gracious Mark, I love him to death. Mm -hmm. He was able to put patience forefront and help me to say, just let it fold out. Aww. Hold on. Let it fold out one day at a time. And my sister and I kept saying, deal with 10 seconds at a time, not a whole day, not an hour, 10 seconds. And if you've accomplished your 10 seconds, breathe and move on to the next 10. That's how Beautiful. we did it in the hardest times, right? Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I do recommend that people bring a person with them to, I would say, you know, like appointments. How can I say this? Um, not like the appointments that you, when you see your doctor right before you get your chemo every couple right, of weeks. Right, no. But like yeah, when, what, yeah. when you go for assessment appointments, yeah, to bring someone with you, especially in the beginning, you know, like just bring someone yes. with you because you're told you have cancer and they're talking about possible treatments and you're thinking, how am I going to work? How am I going to take care of the kids? Who's going to walk the dog? Wait a second. We have a vacation we're going on in three weeks. What are we, you know, you're not even thinking. Yes. Yes, I can speak to that. In fact, almost uh, 24 hours after my diagnosis, I had such an outstanding outpouring of how do I deal with this in all these things of my life. I called it the circles of cancer. And what I started mm. to draw were overlapping circles everywhere. And all of them came back to cancer. So I couldn't escape all the different duties I had to do. But every single thing, motherhood, friendships, family, work, uh, everything overlapped this terrifically difficult diagnosis. So now I was starting yes. to color in the little spots where they overlapped. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I knock each one of these out? I need a guide. One depends on the next, depends on the next, and they just all tumble in. So what we tried to do is sort out from that sort of circle list, the most important right now thing to deal with. Right now, our family needs to eat. 
okay, we're going to set up a website, a friendship website, and, and we're going to run it ourselves. And people that keep asking a million times after we told people, mm. they want to help. So we're like, let them help. Three days a week, we had people bring meals. One day a week, they did lawn mowing. Another day a week, we put our laundry on the corner and people picked it up and did our kids' laundry. Amazing help. We I love took that. It. Yes. We took and all the help we could get. I used a Helping Hands website, uh, and that was a huge struggle for me. And being, I love that you two were able to do that, because for me, I am a person who has 14 bags of groceries. I'm fishing for my keys to open the door. You say, do you need a hand? And I'll say no. Right. And on, uh, honestly, because we're teachers, that was hard to take help. But you know what? Yeah. I said to my husband, I said, let them in, because there's no other way these people can show love right now. They can't support us. Love you that. Know, I need, love that. Yeah, yeah, you were giving people the means to be a contribution to you. Because yes. when people feel powerless around your diagnosis, a way to empower them, to give them to, a way to make a difference is to create. I use the Helping Hands website and, and, and create a list of things that I would need people to do at certain hours of the day on certain days. And they signed up and they loved it because they got to be a contribution. Yes. In fact, uh, my kids will never forget. They learned a little magic because we have a magician locally you might know very well. And he shows up at the house. Now, we weren't really great friends, but he knew me professionally because we once had him do some magic work at our school. And I'm a teacher. James. So he, uh, David Moreland. I don't know if I know him. Yeah, he's, he's delightful. And his wife ran Cat's uh, Pajamas at the time and Mimi's Attic and all that in Ithaca. So, so David came and they, they brought their family's recipe for black beans and rice. And he sat on the back porch with us and he brought these little tiny blue uh, magic things with red balls in them. And he showed the kids how, how to hide a ball. Mm -hmm. And I will never, for, for years, it's, you know, it's almost been eight years, they have kept those little blue things and have reminded me when the magic man came oh that's and wonderful. what an amazing and so many gifts were given to the kids that they got mixed up sometimes how come when such a bad thing is happening mommy why are people giving us all these wonderful things you know they were very confused a few times oh i I'm, I'm, that makes a lot of sense i'm sure i noticed the world changing around me as i asked for help and you know i was living in a world full of people caring for me and, uh, yes. You know, and I, I don't want to step over. That was a challenge to me and my concept of masculinity. I imagine so. And, <laughs> and even in my, in my family, even the women in my family are very strong and independent. So, you know, I had the masculinity factor and then, you know, the strong independence factor. You know, I wasn't going to ask anyone to help me with anything. I should say, though, being independent for all those listening does not mean you have to be stoic and not ask for help. We, we allowed that to happen. When I saw my husband trying to go to work every day as a teacher, creating sub plans three times a week because he was taking me to radiation sometimes when other people weren't, you know, we had this crazy schedule. I could see his ability to keep it all together, decreasing daily. And I was beginning to suffer as well because I could see he was suffering. Mm -hmm. So convincing people to help each other um, helped us, you know, help. I mean, they started bringing us meals and did the lawn and all the things. What I saw was relief. He had enough relief to examine himself carefully and see that he needed to take a leave of absence from work. Wonderful. If we didn't get that, 
he never would have been able to survive the long term. I mean, I have a permanent physical disability. I still have serious issues that will never go away. And it affects our life always. But it's being eight years out now, looking back, it was not realized yet what we had coming. So I'm so pleased that in cancer survivorship, I have his support and we made it through that really rocky time, you know? Yeah, no, that is fantastic. That's it's it's such a blessing to have a partner who is a an effective caregiver. The first yeah. time I went through my my first diagnosis, I had a partner and she was a fantastic caregiver. The second time we were split up and I was renting a room from a friend. He and his wife were split up at the time, so I was renting a room from him and my son was with me uh, half the week. And uh it was a very different experience going through it. Let's let's hear more about that second diagnosis. That's when you metastasized to stage four to the liver. Yes. Was that okay? Yeah. I, Can you talk just a little bit about how you were diagnosed and were you in New York City getting the diagnostic stuff or up here? Or yeah, I had my treatment and surgery in Guthrie, Sarah, Pennsylvania. So I'd go down there for scans, and I believe that I was still doing quarterly scans at the time. After a scan in late August, I received a call, and they told me that there was a spot on my liver, and they wanted me to come in. I said, do you think it's cancer? They said, we think it is. And I tell people, you know, people who are listening, if you've never been diagnosed, or if you know someone who has, Generally speaking, the first time they diagnose you, they call you in and say, we'd like you to come see us and we have some things we need to discuss. The second time you're diagnosed, <laughs> they, they can just tell you over the phone. You know, it's like... <laughs> oh, oh, gosh, that's awful. Yeah. And so I hung up the phone and, you know, I said, are you sure? Because they said they spilled water on the machine and it could have affected the... Uh, ah the um, imagery and so they said well let's have a look and they called me back and they said no it's not water on the <clears throat> imagery it looks like cancer and so I hang up the phone and I walk downstairs and there's my boy he's you know a little older than four and a half and he says hey mm -hmm. papa can we go to the waterfall and play so what did I say I said of course yeah. Yes, you did. Of course you <laughs> and we did. Went to the I know exactly what you went through. And we through. played. Yeah, because, and I'm standing there thinking, I'm going to die. And we're playing. And I yeah. love my child beyond words, and he wants to play, and I'm, you know, this is not something for him to carry. And so I went down to the dock, and I called a friend. I'm like, hey, will you come with me? Because I need someone to be there with me if I'm going to get diagnosed with cancer a second time. <clears throat> so she agreed. And uh, the doc's got a smile on his face. He says, come on in. He said, I've got good news for you. I said, oh my gosh, you don't have cancer? He's like, no, you do. But you have the good kind of metastasis. And I'm looking at my friend and looking at him. I'm like, what? And he's like, no, trust me. He goes, <laughs> so he sits me down and he says, the cancer metastasized. So I had stage two rectal cancer. He said, the, met the cancer metastasized through the portal veins which are a huge web of veins that run from the large intestine to the liver, where the liver can then you know, do its job with the blood there. And so he said, the metastasis did not go through your lymph nodes. It went through the portal veins into your liver. So your state- I've never even heard of that. Right? I mean, well, when they thought I had liver involvement, they referred me to this guy named 
Bostwick or something out in in uh, Roswell. And I got this phone call on a Sunday saying, we understand that you have liver, you know, metastasis and we need to see. I was like, wait a minute. No one told me. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. And so I had to talk to this guy. And then they said, what do you mean no one told you? And we're going to have to do a biopsy. And then it turns out all of that was incorrect or something. I never got a liver biopsy. But there was a point where I was so sure I felt I thought of you. Mm. So back to you, the, the portal vein. I never even heard of that. Yeah. And so by going through the portal veins, you know, it doesn't go on to the lymph nodes, which, you know, they call the superhighway of the body that gives cancer, you know, much easier capacity to travel through the body to other organs and uh, it had gone through my portal veins into my liver and he referred me to a liver surgeon and then I had a second opinion in Rochester and it was the doctor did not receive the imagery and was seemed pretty annoyed with me that I'd bothered to go up there and see him. He's like, I would do the same thing they're recommending. Like, I, I, I was out of my, I, I could not comprehend this guy's response. I'm like, well, guarantee, I'm not even going not, to, I'm not working with you. I'm not even going to see, you know, what your patient ratings are and how long you've been doing this. I want nothing to do with you. I, I, it was so strange. He's the second doctor I've been to that just kind of seemed to, to not have time for me. Very strange. Other doctors I've had, I've loved. So then I'm like, well, I guess I'll go to Guthrie. And a buddy of mine says to me, my buddy Brad says, did you go to a Memorial Sloan Kettering? I'm like, no. He goes, are you gonna? And I didn't have a partner with me. I didn't have my spouse anymore. I was already feeling defeated that our marriage was over and we were only like, you know, 10 months out. Um, mm. And I'm like, no. He's like, why? Why aren't you going to go? I said, dude, all the driving down there and the appointments. He goes, you want rides? I'll give you rides. Wow. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And so he gave me rides. And so so I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering. I made an appointment and I went to see Dr. Nancy Kemeny. And she is an oncologist that only works with people who have colorectal cancer metastasized to the liver. Wow. No colorectal cancer. No liver cancer, only colorectal metastasized to the liver, and that is her focus. And I ended up having my uh, surgery down there, and Brad, the same guy, he uh, called his mom, and they let me stay at their place after the surgery because the doc didn't want me to leave town for a few more days just to make sure there weren't any issues. He gave me a ride back, and this same guy brought me down to a couple different appointments. I went down to Manhattan like every five weeks. At one point, I talk to him. I'm like, Hey, I have another appointment. I'm like, do you, do you want me to call someone else? It'd be easier if someone else gave me a ride. And he was like, yeah, that would be great. Because I was so neck deep in my cancer diagnosis that I didn't think about the fact that this guy's like taking time off from his family and work to go help me out. And it just never crossed my mind. I was just so overwhelmed and emotionally distraught about my marriage being over. And I have cancer and I'm split up with my wife and I don't have a job because I lost my job. She left, she ended our marriage in November of 2010. And then I lost my job in January of 2011. And I moved out of the house in May of 2011. And then I got diagnosed with cancer in, on September 1st of 2011. So in 10 months, like- What a year. 
Oh my gosh. Hell of a year. So I was not thinking about my buddy who was like stopping his life to help me. So I finally woke up to that a few months in and uh, graciously found someone else to give me rides. But so, yeah, it was it was a phenomenal support of him and many other people that got me through that. And then, yes, I ended up working with uh, Dr. Nancy Kemeny and Michael D'Angelica was the surgeon and he did my surgery on October 28th. I think. And that's when you got that cool liver pumping. And he thing. installed the pump, the hepatic artery pump, also known yeah. as the Kemeny pump. And yeah, he, what a cool thing! Right, it uses atmospheric pressure and body temperature to pump chemo directly wow. into the hepatic artery. It goes right into the liver. So I would have, you know, the traditional chemotherapy injections. You know, they call it systemic chemo because it gets pumped into the port and it gets goes through your whole system. And then there was the hepatic artery pump chemo, which is a localized chemo that just goes directly into the liver. And those two combined were uh, a heck of a treatment. It was fantastic. Um, <laughs> you know, they, when, I, when I met with Dr. D'Angelica, he said, you know, I don't often see patients like you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, no, yours is a very simple procedure. I'm just going to cut out one part of one of your liver lobes. And it's the part with your gallbladder on it. So you won't have a gallbladder when we're done. Hmm. And that's going to be it hopefully, you know, because he usually sees patients who have metastasis with multiple lesions in the liver. And Dr. Kemeny, I think he determines, you know, what's the best way to approach it, you know, what tumors can be removed, which ones will need to remain. And then she applies chemotherapy, systemic and the uh, localized to the liver with that pump. Yeah. So I had a hepatic artery pump mm. on the right side of my abdomen. I had a colostomy pouch on the left side of my abdomen. And I had a port in my chest, just under my and clavicle. That's when I met you. Yeah. I met you af after, before those were removed. So here I am, like, I am, you know, I'm 52. So I remember when um, The Bionic Man was like my favorite TV show, yes. right? The $6 million man, whatever. So I, the first thing you do when you meet me is you just kind of flash, <laughs> don't worry, you can do anything. And you basically flashed your stomach with all of these devices. Now, maybe an average uh, a person that is more afraid of medical equipment would have been freaked out. But I was so intrigued and amazed that you were doing that well, having all this like portable equipment. I had zero idea that you can receive chemotherapy and walk around. Mm. I didn't know that you could be, they put a port, a physical cut in your shoulder and then they insert a, a tube and or whatever. Yeah. Man, all this stuff that they can do. I mean, we walk around with these like boluses of chemo that distribute certain amounts of liquid chemotherapy, poison into our bodies and we go to the grocery store. It was one of my biggest realizations during the whole process that we're walking among people with cancer everywhere and they're all living right now. Yeah. I'm not looking at them on their deathbed. These are people walking everyday lives with cancer. So you are like my, like, ah, moment, mm -hmm. you know, right? Star moment that I could actually live a different but similar life with my family. And so I was not as afraid oh. at that very moment. I love hearing that's that. That's great. wonderful. 
So maybe you could have scared me, but you also calmed me down. You know, others may have thought, oh, what is he doing? You know, but I was very gregarious and outgoing. So it made perfect sense to my personality. Oh, well, good. And you know me and I am as well. And it was, you know, I, I, it has freaked some people out. And it's just a little bit much because, you know, the mind brings so much story and history yeah. to a body full of medical devices. Yes. And people don't always want to know about it. I mean, did you have some people in your life that just said, don't tell me anything about what you're going through in my own family? I, I had members of my family say, just tell me that you did it and don't give me any details. I can't take it. I did have a family member who didn't seem to understand the, uh, the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for when it came to the treatment, you know, the extent of the treatment. And I think that family member yes. just, wasn't ready to let it all in. It was too much. And one of the things that having cancer taught me was to have compassion for other people, specifically folks who just can't be with my diagnosis. I had a friend who was diagnosed long before I was. I was diagnosed in 2007. She was diagnosed in 2005. I don't know if that's long before, but a couple of years before. And we were in a training program together and when she could no longer be in the training program, I stopped seeing her and I also stopped reaching out to her and she called me and said, she called me and a bunch of other people from the program and said, where are you? Like, I have huh. cancer right now and I'm not hearing from you. What's the deal? Wow. And I burst into tears. I'm like, I said, Mary, I love you and I'm scared to death you're going to die and I ran away. I'm so sorry. Aww. And she said, well, I'm not dead. I'm still here. When are you going to come visit? I'm like, how about <laughs> Thursday? And she said, yeah. So I came that, and visited her. That is great. It doesn't always work that way. Oh, no, she was a powerhouse. And so when I got diagnosed, I had people that didn't show up. They kind of vanished. Mm -hmm. And I Me was too. able to recognize, oh my gosh, I was that person. That's amazing. You disappeared. What yeah. a gift the shame and embarrassment of, of that was when she called me. The gift that she was to me in calling me out and saying, you're my friend, where are you? You know, wow. most people would say, gosh, how could you do that? Well, know what it provided me? It provided me the capacity a to move through it and still go be a support to her and b it gave me the capacity to have compassion for others and so i kept a very active blog when i was diagnosed and going through treatment and i left i wrote a post about you know i'm not hearing from a bunch of folks and i shared in detail the whole experience with mary and so, so i want you to know i know this is difficult for some people, it's for difficult for all of us. And for some of you, you just don't want to engage with me. I said, I know you love me and I get it and know that I love you and this works. As a result, some, wow. folks, yeah, some folks did end up reaching out to me. Now I wrote a blog too, but mine was called Five Nodes in a Dream. <laughs> I, think it, I think it was called that because something special about the five nodes of the whole bunch they took were like extremely cancer filled. And I felt like I needed to tell my family, here's a place that you can read about my medical updates. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't do is put that blog out to the world. I actually really tightened up my social interactions. I, I let people know it was available only by you know inviting and then they could check at any time. It didn't post and constantly update them. It wasn't like that. They had to sign in to get you know information. So I, I, I did not put it on Facebook. I'm not a super social media girl. I found that telling less people made my life easier. Everyone comes to cancer in such different ways, right? Yeah, and I'm a bit did of a freak. Did you tell everybody? Oh, I broadcast yeah. it to the world. 
I just made so it public. So you needed that. I needed, you needed that broadcast. And, and, and exactly. And that's, I love that you said that, that how each individual has to go through it their own way and what works for them. What worked for me was letting you know my family and friends and community know what was going on without having to talk on the phone to everybody and email everybody. So I put it on a blog and uh, I kept that blog so folks would be aware of what the process is like. And so then I started noticing there were folks in Australia, Europe, Eastern Europe, South America, uh, United States everywhere. They were all, you know, on six, we have seven continents on this planet, right? And on six of them, people were uh, reading what I was up to and commenting. And I was like, wow, like I'm making a difference. I'm being a contribution. And so then as I'm writing about, you know, the emotional experience of having cancer, I started to distinguish, started to notice that the more honest I was about the things that I was ashamed of and wanted to hide, the f more free yeah. I became. So the more I, yeah. the more I told on myself, the more I, I revealed my secrets, now I didn't have to hide them. And so it, and I, that's amazing. And that was part of the training that I was actually doing with that woman, Mary, I was telling you about. And uh, one of the things I picked up from it, something, so I'd get on there. There were times I'm like, okay, so what I don't want to tell you today is, <laughs> and then go on because it really just freed me as a human being. And I also want to acknowledge that when I was keeping my blog, when I shifted to a different treatment, to a traditional treatment, and I had to have a colostomy, I actually kept a separate private blog about the colostomy because I was so ashamed. Wow. I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that process and then get it. And now it's so much better for you. But I know that I also asked you a lot of questions back then about it because I was terrified of it. Now, I mm -hmm. do not have a colostomy. In part of my world, I almost wish that I had understood, you know, because I suffer from fecal incontinence. So I, I and I, that disability is a very real thing. So I, I look at you and I'm kind of almost jealous at times that you figured it out so you can just go hiking and do all these things oh, that I right. find I don't do great. I mean, we have all kinds of plans. My family calls me the goose and it's because, you know, it, I have to pull off trail and clean up and then move back on if I'm going to do any hiking. And it, it can be very intimidating, especially now with COVID. I used to use public restrooms frequently everywhere we traveled. Even when I went to New York City to visit the city for some things I was doing, I had to log out all the restrooms so that I could actually get around and be safe and mm -hmm. feel some confidence. Well, I've lost all of that now due to the restrictions of COVID. And so fortunately, we're lucky to have a camper. And oh, two good. years ago, yeah, so two years ago as part of the great journey of this cancer diagnosis is my husband and I always had wanted to take children someday when we first met. He had done it when he was 10. He went across the nation with his family who were teachers and his dad had a sabbatical. So they went to the national parks and toured the whole nation. And we said, as teachers, we have these eight gift weeks in the middle, our, our, our cost of, you know, it, it, you don't get really good money, really, if you have a master's degree and you're a teacher, but that extra, you know, that eight, six, eight weeks in the summer, so someday we will take our kids. Well, it took cancer for us to say, now is the time. Mm -hmm. So when I was well enough to travel, we bought a truck. We bought a 26-foot Jayco J-Flight trailer. Mark learned how to drive it, which I have not yet. <laughs> and we took our family. In 2018, we spent 60 nights with our, our kids, 
the five of us in a 26 foot. We went to 15 national parks. We went all the way out to California. We even went to Disneyland and took the, the trailer into Anaheim, California, and then went back across the country. So I've got to say that, you know, all of these crazy things that, that cancer is bad for, it's also got so many silver linings mm. and it's so creepy. You almost feel guilty because in Disneyland, I got a special disability pass because of my fecal incontinence. I can't wait in lines. I can't ah, wait in lines. Right, yeah. So not only did we have the fast pass, which is a scheduled pass for when you come back to get a ride, but we had the fast pass and the disability pass, <laughs> which is ask, ask no questions. I went on like 35 to 40 rides with my family, which I never would have done because I wouldn't have waited on lines like that and I wouldn't have liked it anyway. Well, I found out. We, we can have entertainment in a different way. Oh, you know? I love hearing that. I've always looked at the Fast Pass tickets and been like, oh, what's this for the people who are willing to pay more? I could, they drive me crazy, blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and, like, and now nope. I'm hearing like, no, actually there's other reasons. There's folks who can't wait in lines. And I love that. I yeah, love and that. And also the Fast Pass isn't for people with more money, I found out. So I opened my eyes to thinking differently because of my own disability. And, you know, the disability was was treacherous. I mean, I was diagnosed in a community hospital and did not take it to a university hospital. If I had had that second diagnosis, that's the number one reason I teach. I go to Cornell University classes and I work with the cancer and community class because I speak to them about the importance of getting a second diagnosis the very first mm. time you're diagnosed don't wait if the doctors are yeah. good they should be fine with you getting another diagnostic done because here's the thing cancer is a little slower usually usually and yeah. you don't have to get it cut out of you in the first 10 days right yeah so i want to pause you there because i have a lot of questions about that and I, but I just want to sneak in real quick. My secret colostomy blog. It was. A, I just want to close oh, yeah. on that note. Finish back. There was a, a friend of mine messaged me, and he's like, "My friend Jim, dear friend, we've been friends forever." He said, "Bert, what do you mean secret blog?" He's like, "If you don't tell everyone about this, who's going to?" And I just kind yeah. of dropped my head, and I'm like, "Oh God, look at me. I'm. I'm just. I'm ashamed." The only person I knew who ever had a colostomy, hers would. Um, um, you know, release a lot of odor into the room. And yes. I don't know if it was her technique or just the supplies she had, but, you know, mine has a carbon filter and, you know, there's no smell when gas gets passed, when it releases through the device. Um, so I had this, you know, horrible image of who I was going to become and just incredibly ashamed about it. And so it was incredibly liberating when I was able to say, okay, hi, everyone, guess what? I've been keeping a secret blog with my regarding my colostomy because huh. I've been too ashamed to tell you. And I'm oh, all done doing that. That must have been hard. Yeah, and then people must have responded very interesting uh, with that, like very uh, interested because I imagined that they thought, oh my gosh, this is like a deep part of who he is, right? Yes, they did. And I am aware of the fact that by letting people see, I learned early on, like in 2007, that if I let People, if I speak to what I'm ashamed of publicly, it actually creates connection. And a, like a year after I had been in that practice for about a year on my blog and personally in my life, I saw that Brene Brown TED talk that really brought her to the forefront of the conversation 
in you know Brene Brown, she talks about guilt and shame and intimacy uh-huh. and how the, oh if you haven't seen Brene Brown, her work is Mm-mm. phenomenal. First thing you want to do okay. is you want to go to TED and you want to go to TED Talk Brene Brown. You want to find her first one, and she says okay. you know, there's a, there's a meter. It's like you know we want to feel intimate and connected with people naturally, and so we hide the parts of ourselves we keep secret the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of because we think that if people see that part of us they're not going to want to be connected with us what and then that creates separation but when we speak to people about the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of and we want to hide they can relate to that because we all have that within us we all have that experience in life and actually creates connection so sharon so you didn't get a second opinion you were saying Yes, uh, I did not get a second opinion. The when let me just say at the time that I probably should have, because there's a difference in the way medicine is given to where dependent upon where you live. I had no idea that community medicine was a thing. I thought that when you became a doctor, you knew things, but I guess I should have known at age forty-five that there's specialties, which I did, but I, I didn't think it was in the world of cancer, you see, I, I thought cancer was just cancer. Nobody in my life had have it. So I just thought, oh, cancer, I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my hair first and I'm going to die. That's like, those were the first two thoughts I had mm. because I was sitting on the edge of the bed on that diagnostic day. And I, I guess it was, um, uh, I, I actually, they did it by telephone. I had a um, gastroenterologist do the, um, the colorectal thing. What do they call it? the um, colonoscopy. colonoscopy and the reason they did the colonoscopy is because I had symptoms that were not getting better blood in the stool which they originally misdiagnosed me too because they said oh that's internal hemorrhoids just take this bulking agent and drink this and it should go away I said I've never had yeah, I've my never doctor had said the that. same thing really over six months oh. he kept telling me that I had hemorrhoids still finally I asked to see a specialist but go on it took me three months of drinking this goo and more blood. And then I just said, finally, listen, I think I need a, a something called a colonoscopy, you know, and I was just too young. And also I just, it, okay, I'm not knocking myself. None of us should take blame for things we don't know. It's like, once you have a baby, you know what having a baby's about. Once you have cancer, you know what having cancer is about. Okay, mm-hmm. So it's just a straight up learning curve. And the learning curves are, are constantly straight up. Every decision we make is a new learning curve. So now what I know, what I've taken away from this is that when you enter into a new situation, you need to ask around a bit. You need to understand what you're facing. And so now if, if I had had that early on, then what they would have said is don't hurry to get surgery. Consider a neoadjuvant treatment, of a treatment of radiation prior to any surgery to try to reduce the tumor. But because I was dealing with community medicine, not a specialist, I didn't know this, but they treat you kind of like a protocol. So get the cancer out protocol. <laughs> so when they diagnosed me by telephone that night, it was, okay, It's we think you have a stage one colon cancer. You'll be back to work after surgery. So you were diagnosed on the phone. Oh my goodness. And I just said they don't do that. I was. No, I was. Mm. And they said, so in that case, who do you want your surgeon to be? And I remember it was like six o'clock at night. My kids were screaming. My husband was busy cooking dinner. And I was like, you, you what? 
you know, they thought I had cancer prior to that phone call, but they didn't fully diagnose it till that phone call. And then they said, so you get to choose your surgeon and we have one that does colon surgeries. You see, so I thought, oh, she's, I shouldn't say in a small community anyway, the person that did the surgery did not have that expertise. So went forward with that surgery. And I wished I had stopped because I could have stayed within the standard of care that's more current if I had gone to a colorectal specialist. So to be clear, a community medicine facility, when you say community medicine, that is like the general surgeon that is a... Yes. Let me ask, what does community medicine mean? To me, I'm, I'm not totally educated on this in the way other professionals might be, but from what I have gleaned from this experience, especially smaller communities, like, you know, where, where we are, there aren't defined specialists for each type of cancer in our city. So a community medicine person versus a, a university model is that you are dealing with people that might know about cancer and how to operate on cancers, but they don't particularly know as much as the specialist would be that might be in New York City or a larger facility okay. about your specific type of cancer. So I had a surgeon that knew how to do lower anterior resections, take out a tumor, put the pieces back together and send me on my way. That surgeon didn't know anything about rectal cancer. So this sounds like the surgeon took on a surgery that they were not prepared or trained to do. It felt that way. It could have been better. I can't challenge that person. I did do some investigating and there are people that have actually sued this surgeon before and um. won. And so another piece of advice would be to check ahead of time on the surgeon's stats. Of course, I trusted modern medicine, silly me. Um, you want to look up your surgeons ahead of time. And what I found is if there's a specialty, then they have seen what you have lots and lots and lots of times and are better at dealing with what will happen when they're in the surgery. Now, my, t my person had not seen this probably ever, or maybe very few times, and did the standard of care sort of on the outskirts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Not the current right now standard of care. It sounds like you were diagnosed with cancer and the doctors gave you options and you thought to yourself, well, they know I have cancer. They're not going to mess around. They're giving me to, they're sending me to the right person. Yes, let's do this. And you take the recommendation. In retrospect, you realized if you'd asked for a second, if you'd asked people for just their, what they think, even the, the folks in the community, you could have found out the benefits, could have learned the benefits of a second opinion, of a third opinion, but because you were just dealing with, my God, I have cancer and you can help me, wonderful, get this out, come to find out that this surgeon who didn't fully, or I don't know if they understood, let's just say didn't, did not incorporate the standard of care, but just did like the basic standard of care. Because like, you know, if you were diagnosed with a stage three rectal cancer, you know, you very likely would have gotten chemo and radiation prior to surgery to try to reduce the size of the tumor and then have the surgery. Instead, this person just went in and removed it. And it sounds like... Yeah. And they also took with it my functioning sphincter muscles. So I no longer have internal and external sphincter muscles functioning. And I have a permanent physical disability as a result. So you don't have a, an anal sphincter? I, I It's not an anal sphincter because it's further up. But there's 
mechanisms that in the rectal area that hold my storage capacity is minimal and because they cut the rectum so small and also on top of it the working part that holds stool in which sounds gross to talk about sorry is no longer working so it's internal so i didn't know that i had parts that were actually cut that did not need to be cut mm. because this particular surgeon didn't have enough background operating on people with my type of rectal cancer in the location it was. So if, if that person had had training as a specialist, the person would have said, you need to reduce this tumor right now because your sphincter muscles are going to be in the way. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And instead, she did not do that. Oh, that's... I don't. And I, I could yell for my rest of my life about this surgeon, but you know what I decided is forgiveness is the only way I can move forward because we are each who we are for in the time period we are. And if I carry guilt and anger and burden her and I, I just burden myself with the anger, it just doesn't help. So it, there was a period of time 100%. when I found that out. Yeah, that I just, I could have taken that I did speak to people. I did speak to an attorney that had actually been really working very hard to, to get that surgeon not working in this capacity any longer to, to educate people. But that person said, the attorney said, listen, this, this surgeon is still within the standard of care. So I guess the hard lesson has been learned because we can't win this case. We can't help other people yet. I, and that was hard oh, for me. No, I, I can hear that you found the capacity to forgive only when you were mm -hmm. in a position of such powerlessness and such upset with this person who who took on a surgery that was out of her league, right? And it was all permanently impacted your life. It sounds awful, yep. and I love that you forgave her because uh, I'm a huge proponent of forgiveness. You know, when when I forgave my wife for how she ended our marriage, you know, a conversation that followed a couple of years later as things unfolded and we grew closer you know at one point she burst into tears and she said i'm so sorry that i ended our marriage the way i did i can't imagine what that was like for you mm -hmm. and it was and because she, because you allowed her some space to say that and by forgiving her she then had the space to say that and we were able to heal. And I tell folks, I'm like, forgiveness, to me, forgiveness is not for when someone hurts your feelings or upsets you or does something really crappy. Forgiveness is for those areas of life where there is no reason to forgive this person. You know, to quote, forgive this person. There's no reason. And anyone would support you in your upset. And they did something wrong. And that's where I insert the power of forgiveness because not forgiving my wife was Eat, my former wife was eating me alive. It was brutal. Mm -hmm. It was tearing me apart. And that doesn't help you heal. And I needed to heal. And yes. so the way that I decided to fuel my physical disability into a good thing is I started finding ways to use the words fecal incontinence, which were words I didn't even know prior to that existing. Well, let me back up. I knew something was wrong with me and no one in my town knew what was going on because they weren't um, well versed in what happens when sphincter muscles are cut through because of rectal cancer. So I went back to my cancer doctors saying, something is wrong with me. I can't leave the bathroom. And I, this is a problem. 
This is not yeah. like what happens to people that have like um, diarrhea because of, of uh, chemotherapy. This is, this is like dealing, you know, with a baby in a diaper kind of thing that, you know, you're constantly. So I said, this is, this is kind of like, this is different and I need to see somebody. So I started going to a PT and she saved my life. She was a pelvic floor specialist and she helped me strengthen a lot of muscles. But she finally said after months of working with me, this isn't really helping you. I can't figure out why these therapies still aren't um, adjusting your issue because it should not be an issue any longer. And you're way away from the radiation effects. And because there's long-term radiation effects on the pelvic area that include, uh, you know, issues with restroom uh, visits and things. Mm -hmm. So, so at that point, um, all my local doctors said, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. Just be patient. And so I decided to get on YouTube. <laughs> I got on YouTube and Googled, you know, bathroom after radiation, bathroom after surgery, um, rectal cancer surgery, long-term effects. And I kept coming back to these words, fecal and fecal incontinence. And so I started plugging that into YouTube and you'll never believe it. I found a special talk show that focused on this one surgeon from Rochester named Jenny Speranza, mm -hmm. who was my life-saving person. And Dr. Speranza had this new therapy she was working with for fecal incontinence people that involved um, sacral stimulation, a mm. stim unit. And at that time, she hadn't really worked with a lot of people uh, that seemed like me, it sounded like, but she was really successful for a number of people that had had sphincter muscles damaged during birth, childbirth, and um, injury and disease. Mm -hmm. So I listened so carefully. I told my husband, I got to find this lady. I'm mm. going to fly somewhere and I'm going to go get an appointment with her. Well, it turns out she's only an hour and a half away from me. Oh my goodness. So I signed up and it was in that appointment. I, I was just a wreck because she did uh, you know, all the scopes and everything. And she's like, this is awful. Who did this to you? Oh my God. That's what you hear. You know something's wrong and you hear, this is awful. Who did this to you? And that was really unprofessional, but at the same time- I don't, Do you think it was? It, she was caring for me, but at the same time, she was putting down her doctors, her doctor people. That's what I mean. I mean, maybe it's, you know, it sounds to me like what she saw was something she was like, you know- I'm going to have to tell my patient, I'm going to have to tell Sharon, yeah. like what we're dealing with. And the only reason we're she dealing did. with is because of what the surgeon did. And then Sharon's going to ask me, well, what, what happened? Is this normal? And I'm going to have to say, no, this isn't normal at all. Like this is a mess. I mean, she said exactly mm. that. She showed me the anoscope and she showed me the shredded sphincter muscles. Oh. It was absolutely wicked and she looked at me and she said this should not have happened in this order why didn't they offer to shrink the tumor first they cut through all this tissue and i said but the cancer's gone right and she said yes but this is disabling this is a very serious condition and this is the highest level of fecal incontinence in fact it's so severe that i believe i have to ask you to put to for the therapy called a stim unit and we have to get it approved. I have to have you start calculating your stool samples and the number of times you stool for the day. So I had to wear 
a device, they put a, a dummy, like an implant in that was sort of like a test implant. And I wore that thing for two weeks and I had to keep track of the size, the shape, uh, the amount, and then report back because in order to get this expensive quality unit installed, there had to be proof that there was a 50% reduction of incontinent symptoms as a result. And then once we proved that through all of my data, which was easy to prove, that's when they scheduled the surgery, cleared the insurance, and moved forward. It was really intense. So what was that like for you reporting your bowel movements to someone? I mean, to me, I would have, it really would have taken courage. And, uh, I mean, just the discomfort. It's, the, it's, not, it's not something we talk about in this culture. We don't talk about our bowel movements. I mean, in general we do, but we don't really get specific, you know? <laughs> it was the most humiliating. <laughs> I mean, so at first it was just plain funny. I mean, I have a sense of humor. So like we had to report if they were a little rabbit sized or, you know, this, that, the other thing. And there's a little guide. There's a picture oh stool guide about, wow. about how the stool looks and shaped and everything. So that was just hysterically weird. And then there's some pain and discomfort. So you're wearing this device that has leads that come out and you have to um, sort of use this like device that feels like a, like almost like a walkie talkie attached to it. Yeah. And they also adjusted the, the amount of stimulation. Now, this thing affects your whole pelvic floor. So there's some pain associated with the adjustments. And there's some humor because, again, you're, you know, tweak. You're messing the levels. Yeah. And there's, it's a stimulating thing. So that, that all by itself was just bizarre. But then on top of it, this relationship I had with a man mm-hmm. who was on the telephone and I had to call him and say, okay, Ryan, uh, you know, 32 times today, mm. this number of things came out. I mean, I never left the bathroom. I would walk away from the bathroom and stool would fall out of me. So I know this sounds awful for your podcast, but without saying fecal incontinence over and over. Chime in. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. sound awful. You're giving, A, you're giving people who are dealing with something similar some connection, yes. some awareness that they're not alone. And that is the primary purpose of this podcast. And if well, we, good for us then. <laughs> yeah. And the second thing is, and I'm sure you know this, people who are not aware of the importance of second opinions are hearing right now what can happen when you don't get one. And as much as you, yes. as much as you don't want to be that person, you are that person and you are that voice letting people know, like, look, don't do what I did. My friend Mary who called me, and uh, when I yeah. disappeared on her, when I got diagnosed, she called me. She said, hey, Bert, you know, I didn't think my purpose of getting cancer was just so I could call you and support you. But if that's the case, I will. <laughs> she was a goofball. She was great. But then she said, get a second opinion no matter what. She's like, you know, she, she just drilled that into my head. And, and yes. I, I was very fortunate to And you know what's sad? Because she didn't I think also. My parents... She just said, get the, she went to her doctor's. Oh. Get diagnosed. She said, get this thing out of me. They did. They were very aggressive and she wished they hadn't been so aggressive. Well, see, that is the thing. I mean, you don't want to fault these people. They're just doing their jobs, right? But at the other hand, you want to be mad as heck. How dare you violate me and be so aggressive that you've actually caused permanent life, lifetime damage. So I was torn with the whole second opinion really back to that just for a minute because of my small children. 
I didn't have enough set up in advance. I did have family nearby that were willing to take the kids, but they probably urged me to do other things, but I wasn't mentally even in the same place. Cancer, first of all, is so disruptive to Mm. the mental thinking that you can't even really, the logic of it doesn't come together properly sometimes. And so Mark and I, both of us thought, get it out, get it out. And I think that's that's most people think that's what I thought. And when, you know, it's just like, because it was in my, it was, it was attached to my sphincter and in my rectum and I could feel the discomfort and I could see the blood. And I was like, it was so disturbing to have a tumor in my body. I wanted it out. And I'm not going to say we wouldn't have gotten a second opinion, but Mary telling me, get a second opinion, get a third opinion, you know, ask them, how much time do I have to get additional opinions? What stage am I at? How much time do I have for the next stage? That information was so important to me because then when I said that, my doc said, uh, I'd like you to do, I'd like you to start your treatment within the next six weeks. And I, my whole body relaxed. Like I thought he was going to say in the next, you know, six days. Like, yeah, you're stage, yeah. you're stage two. You've got some time. We'll get to go get a second opinion if you want. It's, it's so valuable to know that. And, and, because in the mind, you're like, get this out of my body. My God, this thing could kill me. Get it out. Yes. And what's even crazier now that all of the advocacy I've done and as a result of having a disability and seeing uh, that doctor and having her replace my functionality to the most effect, like I still am in the restroom 10 to 15 times a day. I have a disability that affects my life, but I, I'm working through it's been eight years. I now have all these strategies in place. I can do things. I do have diet, um, really strong plant-based diet approaches. I have really healthy attitude. It took me eight years to get here Mm. with lots and lots of personal hardship, trying to figure out how you raise kids with incontinence. How do you run a normal family life when you're in the restroom too many times a day that makes you feel like an idiot. It gets to the point where, you know, that's why I was nicknamed the goose, you know, goose poops everywhere. Um, Uh. It became like the family joke. um, The goose has landed is the term that my family uses when (laughs) I need to quick break off break off the trail. Um, but I, I travel with a bag of supplies. I always have the garbage bag, the cleanup stuff, an extra set of clothing. It's not like splashing stool. It's not that gross. It's just like, oh, got to clean up quick and get back on the road. You know, it yep. used to be so freaking humiliating. It's like your colostomy bag. When you first do it, you, you're abhorred. You think everyone's watching. You think everyone's listening and smelling you. It's not like that. Incontinence can work in a, in a, confined way. Like now that I had the device, I was able to reduce the episodes of embarrassment to the point where I could actually get some work accommodations. And that meant as a teacher, I have another adult in the room, which by the way, I had to fight, 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 fight for. Mm. They made a strong suggestion that I leave, that I leave teaching and that I was an economic hardship for the, di- for the district. So that's just so sad to say. So without oh. that story burdening this conversation, that took a bit of effort as well. So there was work. Remember those circles I told you about? Like there's yeah. all the circles of cancer. Like I was trying to knock them each down. So, you know, the problem with the disabilities, it got in the way again. It was it was just like the cancer. So I had like this second set of circles all being drawn over all of my activities yeah. exactly like cancer did. It sucked. And it's so Excuse important me, that you... No, it did. It did. It did. And it's so important that you brought this up because someone else who's in your shoes, who's listening to this right now, 
is thinking, wow, my school told me I shouldn't come back and I didn't want to leave. And now that person's thinking, oh. wait, what? I can, I can stay. I can demand that I stay. We don't know the power we have. We get yeah, so- Yeah, I kept showing up. You kept showing up. I literally kept showing up. They kept saying, you should be done now. And I'm like, no, I have rights. I am staying. So I hired an attorney and I went to, to a bigger city and I learned my disability rights. It turns out that it wasn't a disability if they could prove. It's not like a, a grievance. If they could prove that I had an economic hardship to the school district, then it would mean that that was true. But a million dollar school district can't prove that one teacher coming back for that much is going to really affect them. So they couldn't do anything with me. So I just ignored them. And so I kept, I kept showing up at the school I taught and then the next school I taught at for, so for 24 years. So for the last six, I've been doing a great job. And because I didn't leave teaching, the issue's kind of gone away now, I'm hoping. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad that I made the right decision and stuck with my guns because otherwise uh, I'd be receiving, oh, which I won a federal dis disability case too. Did I ever tell you that? No. So first I want to say well done. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. I'm trying not to blame people, but man, everyone's rough when it comes to cancer. They just don't get it. People are rough when it comes to cancer. They're rough when it comes to money. Yes. You know, right now, COVID. right now yeah. we're in a world where in one hand, there's a concern about people getting COVID-19 and the spreading of it. And in the other hand, there is the concern about the impact on the economy. And we have people taking sides. And why wouldn't they? That's, that's what we do as humans. We take sides. But it's, you know, it's another version. It's, it, there's a you know, incredible similarity to what you, were, what you were dealing with as a teacher where Yes, we understand that you have this health issue and we have a budget we have to stay within. And right. you know, it's, it's all about, you know, caring for people and at the same time being able to be financially sustainable. And you were able to determine and come to the awareness that it was not going right. to be an issue for this school to bring in one more person so you could continue to teach. Right. I also used a regional um, advocacy center for, um, you know, uh, rights for people with disabilities. So I, I, I relied on some really important community resources, which I think you should all try to like our cancer resource center. I think everyone that has a resource center in their city, um, relying on them can be, yes, as, as you, you know. So I'm showing Sharon right really now important. on the video, my, my, <laughs> my cancer resource center t-shirt that I'm wearing, my new t-shirt they gave me. Which I I which I don't do the walkathon very well because that's one of my hardships. Um, you know, it's very rare that I go on long walks because that I always have to peel off. And at the at that particular event, there's no private place I can mm. I can offload. So, <laughs> so talk about that. You have a stim unit now that yes keeps you more continent than you normally would be, and you still have limitations. I absolutely do. And yes. you, with the STEM unit, you still manage your diet in such a way. I mean, I do diet diet management myself mm -hmm. with the colostomy. Like you know, I avoid gassy food. I can't control passing of gas, and sometimes it's noisy. And so, I manage what kind of food I eat and when. If I'm going to go to a quiet meeting, I'm going to eat non-gassy foods. I like have sometimes I'll just put no vegetables in my meal. 
if it's important, if I'm worried about it enough, you know, and make up for it later in the day, just because I don't want to be passing gas in public. And I'm certain you would be thrilled to have my issue and not your own. Yeah. So like, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, yes. I'm comparing apples to apples and I'm not. Well, like, well, no, with fecal incontinence, gravity is your enemy. So as a teacher, um, the way, okay. So back up to federal judge. When I filed for, someone said I should file for social security disability because of fecal incontinence. And I was shocked. I said, mm -hmm. I never heard of that. I'm not disabled. I can go around and do things. They're like, no, 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 you are disabled. It's affecting your work and you have to have special accommodations. You have the right because you have had this condition for 14 months. And I said, I, mm. what do you mean? They said, well, to all of your listeners, if you have had a disabling condition for more than five consecutive months and it continues and you expect it to continue, you can apply for social security disability. And I thought I was getting that through my sick bank at my school, but they said, no, this is uh. different. You don't have to burn through your sick days. You can get this back pay. So that's when I hired a social security disability attorney right here in town. And she won the case for me because she explained to me that you have documentation from four doctors that you have this disabling condition. You have stunning records. You've kept copies of all of your surgeries and all of your notes, which I recommend people do. And then not only that, but you have documented with your school district that you've had this issue. So, so what they found out is the North Carolina federal judge got on the computer. We went to the uh, city of Syracuse and I had my tele telemeeting with social security. It was so surreal. You had to be let in the locked door. You go mm. in with your attorney. You go into this closed room that has recording devices set up. It has a manager of all the recordings. You have your attorney yourself, and then you have a screen. Then the judge appears on the screen, but the judge was behind a computer. So it was like this. And I couldn't, I'm holding mm. my hands in front. So Bert can see that I could not see the face of the judge. So the camera was behind the computer. So you couldn't see the judge's face. Was that intentional? Yes, I think so. Because the emotion that goes with this probably affects the people making the decisions. And so he has to be completely fact-based. So all I could see were black shoes, a black gown, and a large computer screen. Oh my God. So when he said to me, Oh my God. When he said to me, I need to know something. Did your employer use the words economic hardship? And I said, Yes. He said, For that reason alone, with your unique situation, you're a highly skilled employee that can't go get work. And they had um, an assessment done by the people that do like the work, like they have a scale. And the fact that I can't go get a job at McDonald's is part of the problem here. And they don't look at home employment. They don't count that. They, they count this as out of home employment. So I can't just go stand on a line. I can't go work you know, a low, a low um, skill job either because of my unique situation. So it's called a bodily impairment disability. And at that point, when, when I used those mm. words, he said, I'm very concerned for you. If they prove that to be true and you no longer have work, I'm worried that you won't get disability benefits immediately because you'll have to apply again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to retroactively pay you and your children social security disability for the 14 months that you were out. And I'm going to give you what's called extended eligibility rights for each 
Yeah. Oh he goodness. said, even though you're going back to work, you won't get social security during the work times. But from what I understand, you're a teacher that has summers off and you could work paint as a painter, right? I said, well, I can't now. He mm-hmm. said, exactly. So I'm going to give you extended eligibility pay for three more summers. And then if they get rid of you as a result of being an economic hardship and prove it, you go fast track to social security disability and start getting full-time pay. How grateful were you I cried. And you know what? 26%, he said, of his cases, only 26% are won. So I was in that 26% of winning cases. Hmm. And all that money has now been put away for the children. My medical bills that weren't paid, which weren't very many, I have great insurance, but we paid off the rest of the medical bills. We paid Hmm. paid for the potty chairs and the unique things I need. I have a lot of stuff that I wear. Yeah. And then we paid um, for the kids' college funds. So- you know, I'm glad that worked out. So I had to tell the school district that I want a federal social security disability case. And I think eventually that's what the people that were there at the time. So those people aren't there anymore. I think that's what changed it for me. Yeah, because they meet with the district attorney and and the district attorney lets them know, uh, you don't have a chance. This woman is being protected. And unless you can show a serious financial hardship she ain't going nowhere right and i kept showing up (laughs) and you kept showing up congratulations (laughs) and so now i'm yeah so i'm curious um i have to tell you this like having a colostomy i know what it was like to not want to have a colostomy like i was like no way i mean look i I did a tradition i did a non-traditional treatment and people were Know, upset with me, calling me crazy, telling me I'm going to die if I do this. Mm-hmm. And I did it anyway. Why? Because I did not want a colostomy. But when I hear your inability to like walk through the, you know, ah, to, through parks and forests, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm not suggesting you get a colostomy. I don't, I have no idea what you deal with. And I think to myself, the freedom I have in having this colostomy because, you know, he, the doc could have saved part of my sphincter and I would have had, you know, much less effective sphincter muscle and I would have had more incontinence issues. That, that was prior to the natural, you know, unorthodox treatment I did. You know, my doctors believed he could save part of the sphincter okay. muscle. And by the time I was done with the detox therapy and went to traditional treatment, they said there's no saving your sphincter at all. So we are removing it. And at that point, I was in enough pain that I was uh, happy to do it. But I think to myself, like, gosh, like, I imagine the freedom you would have if you had a colostomy. Now, again, like who wants a damn colostomy? Like nobody. Right. (laughs) So I'm curious. I'm I'm wondering if this is a question that you've considered, but what has you choose the lifestyle you have now? What are the benefits of not having the colostomy that have you navigate what sounds to be like a pretty difficult thing? You know, that's a really, really important question. At the time it came up in 2014, She told me that I wasn't at the point where a colostomy bag would be a thing to consider. I think some of that could have been the fact, to be very honest, that maybe a doctor makes more money when a doctor puts in more devices. I don't know. In retrospect, I guess it was partially me guiding that conversation with do anything you can to save my parts. Yeah, absolutely. And they... 
they could with this unit. And because I had such a reduction in the number of times I used the restroom, that 50%, it was actually almost about 60%. It felt, it felt so different and so, so much (laughs) more livable that at the time it was okay. I can do this. You know, looking back, I wish I had known what I know now because there are things that would, here we are again with that straight up learning curve. I have friends with colostomy bags, you, other people. I have multiple friends that have dealt with this now. And maybe it's because the bags are more updated, the filters are better. But my only experience with with colostomy bags have been stinky grandparents, you know, people walking around that burp the bags and they smell up the room or don't, don't fix the area correctly. So I had no idea that it was so up to date. And so I was afraid. I was afraid to even think about that. So was my family, for to be frank. It's gross at first. Yeah, that's that's exactly why I didn't want a colostomy. I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy who stinks yeah. up the room. Because when you have a colostomy, you have a shortened in, intestine, your colon is shorter, and the odor is stronger. And I could still stink up the room, but I knew it was manageable because the stool for me is solid. It's not It's not gross. And so it's easy to clean up. And I just kind of, it just falls out of me sometimes when, and, and I'm, I'm better with diet management. If I eat plant-based and I have solid, like good, good uh, beans and lots of, lots of both kinds of soluble and insoluble fibers, I know the balance I need and the foods to stay clear from so that I can then have reasonable expectations, if that makes sense. Mm, I have the opposite. When I eat a high plant-based diet, I am like, my system is completely sped up. And like, you know, I, I irrigate every morning. I fill my, get up in the morning and I fill my large intestine like from an IV bag with a liter wow. of water. And I wear this three foot long pouch and I, over a 45 minute period, the pouch fills up and then I empty it out, clean it up. And I don't even think about my colostomy all that much anymore. Uh, you know, throughout the day, there's, there's no movement. There's next to none. And then usually there's none. And then if I go to like the local macrobiotic dinner and have a meal, within hours, my bowels are moving and my pouch is filling up. So I find it, it it's so interesting. There's so, there's so many specific, you know, unique circumstances that each one of us is navigating with this. And so you have figured out the right proportion right. of plant-based diet to keep your bowels well, plus, minimum I'm movement. trying not to get sick again, right? And I know that plant-based will make me healthy. So I not only quit drinking, like I quit drinking and as a result, lost some friends there, which probably don't matter. So like the whole idea of that, I also increased my exercise to a little bit more often. Um, even with this unique situation, I can be on my elliptical in the basement and still get exercise. I can still take walks or just shorter. I could still go places and do things. I just have to manage my diet. So all of that is part of the same uh, circle of well-being. So I did not want to stop eating vegetables. So next to somebody that eats just bread to stop <laughs> up their system, you know, like there's certain foods that can stop up your system or you can take medications that stop up your system. I don't want to be on any more medications. Yeah. I don't want to eat just pasta and breads. I, I want to eat a rich diet. So in that realm of knowing it's going to be happening, there's also some routines that you can do, right? Mm-hmm. And even though this happened to me, I just want to make sure, because I know we're probably coming to near end, is that I just want to make sure that 
everyone out there knows that through advocacy and working and telling people and using this these words, fecal incontinence, and saying, get a second opinion, this happened to me and it should not have, somehow that got back to the hospital. And as a result, the hospital has changed how they process people with rectal cancer. They now say, if we find that you have rectal cancer, you need to take it to another hospital outside of this small community. Yay. That is phenomenal. Yeah. In my experience, I've never had a doctor refer me to a different doctor who is a specialist in that field. I've had doctors refer me to other doctors in different fields when they weren't able to find the source of a problem that I was dealing with. But I hear it over and over, like, you know, I've heard doctors, you know, oncologists say to people, I've heard people tell me that oncologist says to them, there's nothing else we can do for you. And then I went to this doctor here at Memorial Sloan Kettering or this doctor here at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and they're treating me and it's making a difference. And I've never understood why doctors don't say there's nothing more we can do. So here I recommend you go to these cancer hospitals. So the fact that our local community hospital is clear they will not treat rectal cancer, this as far as surgeons go, I know the oncologists will, but you know, the surgeons won't. Right. Surgeon, surgery. And, and you know, perhaps until they have a doctor who is uh, capable and, and approved, it, it's phenomenal that they're willing to, to own that. And, to, and, and I'm sorry that it had to be through your experience that they made that decision, but I'm so grateful they made that decision. Well, I think it's through my experience because I didn't like go to them and yell at them or anything. I never even really told the surgeon what happened. I I just can't be in the same room as that person. That's the only thing. There's forgiveness, but there's also like, don't keep reminding me, you know, (laughs) Mm. because like this, this surgeon should no longer be practicing. And every time I support an event that has the surgeon show up to speak, I choose not to go to that event because I think I would throw daggers because at that point I don't feel very forgiving. But when I see the person out teaching and showing people and still doing surgeries, and I have acquaintances that have now told me that they've also been damaged with other parts of their bodies and situations, it's very, very hard for me at that point. So let's From hope her? that the decision was made. Yes. Recently? Yes. Uh No, it was about three years ago that a person, it was breast cancer. So different areas of the body are affected when a community surgeon that doesn't have a specialty, this, not all surgeons, not all cities, let me just really define it. This is one surgeon that may not be ready anymore. I think that this surgeon should move on and I can't make the change. It sounds like she is unwilling to acknowledge her capabilities. Or just simply doesn't know. I mean, we know, God, but I've God, never gone. I, yeah. I mean, what a shame, right? So so what I'm trying to do with education is instead of getting, yeah, instead of me like complaining and being all concerned, what I do now is I go to Cornell University. I go to these classes. I tell every human I know, cancer can take a little bit longer in some cases. So please, please, please get a second diagnosis, um, check in with multiple doctors, go to a large facility and a small facility, compare them. You know, I'm not knocking our doctors. It's a hard job, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It's rough. You know, Sharon, you brought something to my attention. I learned something in this conversation uh, in this podcast. That is, uh, I don't know if I don't recall if I forgave the doctor. My former primary who I saw here in Ithaca, New York, he told me, you know, over a six or seven month period, he told me four times that I had hemorrhoids. 
And finally, I requested to see a specialist. And the specialist gave me a digital exam. Initially, it was the first thing he did. And the first words out of his mouth were, do you have cancer in your family? And then wow. he gave me a scope, sigmoidoscopy. And he said, I, there's so much blood, I can't see anything. Like, you're going to have to have a oh. colonoscopy. And I've seen the doctor who misdiagnosed me. Now, obviously, I changed primaries. I'm still in the same Guthrie system, but I changed primaries. And I saw him out in public a few times. And you know, he was like a deer in the headlights. And I didn't give him hell because I knew I would just end up feeling bad and apologizing. And like, I don't, I don't want to engage with people like that. You know, um, I have mm-hmm. my, I have my moments, but I prefer to not. And listening to you had me realize as we were discussing forgiveness, oh my gosh, like I never forgave this guy. And I learned yeah. from a friend who learned from a coach and teacher is that, you know, the forgive the definition of forgiveness that they use is forgiveness is giving up the right to resent. Yes. And I have been resenting this doctor. It's far more subtle and almost unnoticeable, but there is still some resentment there of what, you know, dude, like you messed up. And when I saw you in public and, sp- and you sp- we spoke to each other, he, you know, he didn't apologize and acknowledge it. And maybe yeah. he's protecting himself legally. I don't know what it was, but I never forgave him. And I really get like, you know, my resenting him is, you know, is because I'm, my mind is under the illusion that it's somehow some kind of leverage. Like, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to keep resenting you until you get it. And then Right. That's never going to happen. <laughs> if it is, it's not because of me. <laughs> you know, so well, can, that's I, the thing. So I can yeah. just give that up. And so I'm going to do that. I, I'm doing yeah. that right now. I'm doing that right now. Yay. He and I are on, equally on our own paths and we will find our way. And, and that's how I feel for this doctor as well. And I know that if it wasn't my experience that will eventually take this doctor out of doctoring surgeries, another experience will do it. Sadly, it just can't be on my journey. And what I do instead is prevent people from ever having to get to the point where they have that surgery, right? Yeah. Have them it's go intense. through the proper protocols. I learned from someone in a program once to uh, forgive the doctor for any mistakes that might happen prior to the surgery. And I'd never thought about that before. And when she told me, when she told the group that she'd forgiven her brain surgeon in advance, it blew my mind. And and she spoke about the capacity that it gave him. He told her and she shared with us the capacity it gave him to be able just to be relaxed and so much more focused, so much more relaxed and focused because she let him know if something were to go wrong, I forgive you. And then, so I had my cancer diagnosis the first time and I thought about saying that I couldn't do it. I did not have the capacity. It was just like, it was so foreign to me. But when I sat down for my pre-surgery meeting with Dr. D'Angelica, he's like, do you have any questions, you know, before we wrap up? And I said, you know, I don't, but I have something I want to tell you. I said, I know these surgeries can go wrong. And I want you to know that if something goes bad, you are forgiven. Wow. And he was floored. He, took him a while to put some words together. And uh, it was a bit emotional for me. I was pretty filled with goosebumps. It was a hell of a thing to say to somebody. I'd say so, yeah. And what it provided me was I really got, wow, you have power as a patient. You have power to give freedom and peace of mind to a surgeon before they cut into you. 
That's extraordinary, Bert. In fact, that's something you just taught me to think about. I mean, I sense of humor was a piece that just came naturally for me through the whole process. In fact, I called my entire campaign the yikes in a way. It's like from Daffy Duck. Um, Yikes in a way was something that I emblazoned on everything. Like my sister actually started working in Denver, Colorado, and uh, she she created a team for the Undy 5000, which is a running team called Yikes in a Way, raise money for me every year. And we drew pictures of Daffy Duck and put it on their underpants that they have to wear because it's for colorectal money raising. And so um, she had, you know, yikes away. Yikes in a way is basically when Daffy Duck keeps running into the trees and smashing each time. Cancer felt like that to me. Like I'd have a great day and the next day would be a smash. And then I'd learn something was great. And then the next day would be a smash. And so over and over and over. And all I could say was if, if I treated people well, if I gave a smile when I arrived to a treatment, if I just thanked a person or showed graciousness in any way, I felt my experience was better. And if this podcast makes one person in the world treat someone mm. else well during this, instead of greeting your caregivers with anger and aggression and yelling at them for how you feel, try just saying thank you when you enter into the room for the first time. What a day you must be having, you know? Yeah, I love that, Sharon. That's wonderful because there can be anger and resentment uh, in, you know, in the mind of a patient dealing with caretakers and practitioners. And when we talk about earlier in the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about, you know, appropriate expression of such things. And, you know, yeah. it's I, for me, you know, the way I see it, it's, it's inappropriate for me to express that toward a practitioner or a caretaker who is just trying to help me and to you know, not like, you know, you know, again, like, you know, the other side of it, the person can then start beating themselves up because of the way they spoke to a person, you know, eh, we don't need to do that. You just apologize for it, take responsibility for it. Don't drag yourself around with it, but you know, just to notice, wow, I just took this out on this person. And this is right. All, all they're here to do is help me. <laughs> Which the, the other thing I wanted to say is it reminds me is that when I got diagnosed, I had to go back to school that day and mm. teach my first graders. So, so I went back to school. So here I am, like after I had my, I had something going on or I thought I had cancer. That's what it was. I thought I had cancer. They said it's pro, it could be cancer. We're going to do this. So whatever it was, I had to go back and face my classroom because it was, I was under the impression that, um, you know, it would be short, it wouldn't be as serious and all these things. So I had to like manage all that. But that day changed my view of humanity. Because what I realized is I'm walking around thinking I'm going to die of cancer right like now. Yeah. And I didn't ever think of anyone else's reality of their own health that way. Does that make sense? I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. It sounds like you're saying you got, I have cancer and I could die. Holy cow, there are other people in the world who are dealing with this. It never dawned on me that as I go through my day... I go to the right. grocery store. There are people walking by me in the grocery store. You know, I'm thinking about you know, me, Bert. I'll think to myself, what's up with this person, their attitude? Well, Bert, yes. maybe they just got diagnosed with cancer and now they have to get <laughs> groceries because they have children to feed. Yes, that's exactly oh, what I say to myself. Sharon, I love yeah. that. If somebody treats you bad, the first thing I say is, oh, they just got diagnosed. Even though they may not mm. have, or they just got bad news. You know, it's it's this is important for me because I consistently, constantly are checking in with myself. I'm thanking people. I'm understanding people. I'm trying to show compassion. I read this book now. 
High Performance Habits, How Extraordinary People Become That Way by Brendan Burchard. Burchard. Yeah. And thank you, Brendan, because we're always trying to seek clarity. And some of my clarity was, why doesn't anyone else have this problem? How come I got it? Like blame and guilt and anger, right? Mm, sure. How, why me? If, yeah. Why me? I'm 45. I have no cancer history. Well, I searched for meaning for a long time. I did quit drinking. I felt that I should have probably done that because there is some research there. Yeah, good for us because there is (laughs) research for people that have susceptibility to whatever genetic, but I didn't have the genetic thing. So I was like, okay, you know, some childhood trauma experts say that there's some, you know, genetic uh, stuff that leads you to disease later. But, you know, there's all these things. The bottom line is I can't control those things. I can control what I do, what my responses are every time I walk into a room. And if that's, if I see a person having a bad day, oh, I'm so sorry. You probably got a, in my head, I say, you probably just got diagnosed with cancer. Sharon, I'm so (laughs) inspired by that. There'll be times when I'm driving (laughs) and I'll be like, what is this person doing? And I'm having a conversation (laughs) with them. And my son, the sweet boy, he's 13 and well, Papa, maybe such and such happened. And maybe they were thinking this and that. And you know, in my mind, it's like, oh, great. Thank you for calling me out. Now I have to let go of my arrogance and, you know, I think I know it all. Sweet boy. No, he's so great. <laughs> and you just brought another point of view to it. Like my son, his mom, you know, when she has someone driving slowly in front of her, what she suggested to me is consider that that person driving slowly is actually keeping you from, you know, getting into an accident. They're slowing you down so you don't end up being in a situation that's going to be worse. That could That's be wonderful. deadly. And so I've, I, I do my best to remind myself of that. And then you just gave me a third, which is like, take on that this person has cancer. You don't know. And maybe it's not cancer. Maybe, maybe it's like just a different, horrible family situation or, or, or yeah. you, you, you just don't know. And, you know, it's like when someone cuts me off in traffic, the first thing I tend to do is, is smile and wave and be like, hey, because I'm like, gosh, yeah. I can't stand when I do that. I feel like a jerk, you know, but... <laughs> You, I, love, yes. I love what I'm going to take away from this podcast is oh, just getting you. like maybe they have cancer. Yeah, I wasn't like that before. I think cancer has given me the ability to sort of have this like weird life wisdom in only the past eight years I've had it. It feels like an awareness that every day, I always knew every day counted and I lived every day like I wasn't going to come home to my family. I always felt like I'm very pragmatic that way. My spirituality comes from trees and air. Mm. So for me, I believe that I'm in charge of my sort of my moves. You know, I don't believe I'm a pawn in the bigger picture. So because I don't have that kind of external a feeling of faith on me, like everything's going to be okay. I never believed that when I got cancer. I said, scientifically, things will work the way they work. But we all know that when you do good things for people, there's like this, this feeling in you that it can, it can do something later. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep that very fresh in my head and, and pay it forward all the time, you know? I just love that. Thank you. Yeah, I chose to use these diagnoses that I've had as an opportunity to grow. And, you know, I'm still the same jerk I was before I got diagnosed, but I tend to like, I tend, <laughs> no. to, man- I tend to manage that jerk way better than uh, I used to, you know. that Well, it, age it, helps. <laughs> age helps too, age helps too. But, you know, it's really the insight that it does provide, you know. 
And I don't know, maybe somebody could have the same insight from driving a truck across the country. I have no idea. Yes. Where, where I else think it's, pro- it's provided. Other life. medical things. Yeah. Other medical things do it. Anything. Well. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there's all kinds of experiences. Maybe someone could have a baby and be like, oh my gosh, like, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Let me, let us just say that you and I both share gratitude for the fact that this particular set of circumstances opened our eyes to a world that we didn't know existed. And the only thing that brought it into existence was a shift in our thinking. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it's a great realization because it just makes me think that when I am having a bad day, I know there's a lot of other people out there having just as bad of a day or worse. So now that I realize that people are walking around in grocery stores hooked up to chemotherapy bags and have to go to radiation, I mean, those are really, really tough times for me. Um, I'm like, oh, I get it now. And so when somebody asks for a hand, I'm, I'm much quicker to give it. I'm much mm. quicker to be gracious and appreciating. So, you know, during, especially during COVID, right, all these times that we're dealing with yeah. right now, when I can help, I do. So uh, it's, it's been eye-opening and very you, related. You are an inspiration. You're, you are too, Bert. Love it. Thank You're my you. first inspiration through all of my diagnosis. So I'm glad that we have this mutual respect and appreciation of each other. Yeah, me too. And I'm thrilled that you're on the podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Cheers. Love I uh, absolutely, I love what you're doing and I, I know that you're going to help a lot of people. So thanks for having me on today. We are together. So you're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. I genuinely hope this podcast was of value to you. Remember to hit subscribe and let your family and friends know they can find But Seriously, The Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. And you can learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching by going to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The idea for me to do a podcast was suggested by my sister Vivian Scholl and my friend Tyler Glassman. Thank you both so much for the encouragement. Thank you all my friends, my community who supported me as I stepped into this endeavor. And thank you, Nate Richardson, the owner and engineer at Rep Studios, because your help and partnership has been immeasurable, my friend. I hope we have a long road ahead of us. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. Find him on any social media as The Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional. 